Numbers chapter 6 in the Word of God. As you're turning, all the children can be dismissed. All the children, follow Mr. Peter upstairs for children's Bible time. All the children can be dismissed. Mr. Peter and Mr. Nathaniel are there to help, so you can follow them right upstairs for children's Bible time. Numbers chapter 6 is where we're at. I want to speak to you this evening on the powerful blessing of consecration. The powerful blessing of consecration. And I want to find this from Numbers chapter 6 and three other passages that we'll examine just casually. But let's look at what the Bible says in Numbers chapter 6 and verse 1. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel and say unto them, When either man or woman shall separate themselves to vow a vow of a Nazarite, to separate themselves unto the Lord. He shall separate himself from wine and strong drink and shall drink no vinegar of wine or vinegar of strong drink, neither shall he drink any liquor of grapes nor eat moist grapes or dried. All the days of his separation shall he eat nothing that is made of the vine tree from the kernels even to the husk. All the days of the vow of his separation there shall no razor come upon his head until the days be fulfilled in the which he separateth himself unto the Lord. He shall be holy and shall let the locks of the hair of his head grow. All the days that he separateth himself unto the Lord, he shall come at no dead body. He shall not make himself unclean for his father or for his mother or for his brother or for his sister when they die, because the consecration of his God is upon his head. Father, speak to our hearts through this passage and others that we'll examine tonight and challenge us, I pray, in Jesus' precious name. Amen. In Numbers chapter 6, we find the instructions concerning the Nazarite vow. The Nazarite vow is not something that is still in effect today, at least to my knowledge, but it is something that was in full effect in the Old Testament. Either a man or a woman could come under the Nazarite vow in the Jewish system of, of understanding, in the Jewish system of tradition and religion. And he's telling us in Numbers chapter 6 what the requirements were to be under a Nazarite vow. Now, we don't really have something exactly its equivalent today. Uh, You probably could say that fasting would be very close to the Nazarite vow. I'm setting myself aside from food. I'm setting food aside. I'm setting uh, what I would normally partake of and indulge of indulge in so that I can seek the Lord. I'm setting the normal relationships or pleasures aside for a time so that I can seek the Lord. And then I will come back to those things that I can partake of that are completely legitimate uh, when I'm done fasting. And the fasting is not so much so that I get God's attention, but so that he gets my attention and really I clear my mind. So that would probably be its, its modern equivalent. But the greater concept and the greater idea that I want us to focus on is the idea of consecration. There just seems to be a very shallow bit of consecration today. Consecration meaning I'm fully dedicating myself to the Lord, fully dedicating myself to the Master, fully dedicating myself to His service. Now, folks, listen carefully to what I'm about to say. If there's no conversion, consecration is null and void. 
If there's no conversion, consecration is unnecessary. If there's no conversion, consecration is useless. Now, there are some people that are consecrated to their religion. They have set themselves apart to their religion. That's the idea behind consecration. But you can set yourself apart to your religion and still die and go to hell. Uh, consecration must be preceded every time by conversion. I want to ask, have you been converted? The Bible tells us that everyone is to be converted, that our sins may be blotted out. That means we must be saved. We must be born again. There must be a point in time in our life when we receive the gift of eternal life. Any religious activity, large or small, measured or not, continuous and consistent or just a smattering, will be useless unless you've been saved. And I want to say tonight, you need to be saved. If there's never been a point in time when you've made the choice to come to Jesus in faith, you've made the choice to believe on Jesus, just like you're believing in that chair to hold you up. Most of you, when you came in, you saw the chair and you said, oh, glory be, a chair, and you just sat down. You didn't test to see whether that chair had a, a good, strong, sturdy way. You didn't look underneath it to see who made it. You didn't go to pastor and ask for paperwork on that chair. You just sat down and you put all your weight, all your trust in that chair to hold you up and watch to give you rest. That's what you do when you come to Jesus. You come to Jesus and you put all your weight, all your trust in him and him alone, not him plus anything, not him plus your promise to be good after you're saved, not a, a commitment to, to give up bad things before you're saved. It's not, that's not salvation. Salvation is simple trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the idea of repentance is you're turning from whatever it is you've trusted in. I was preaching in Memphis some years ago, and there was a pastor that came to, or there was a couple that came to me and said, Hey, there's a lady in the hospital down in this particular Germantown area of Memphis. Can you go see her? She was, she was uh, committed, I think, in, in October. She's had cancer for just uh, several months, and they haven't let her out since she went in. I said, It doesn't sound good. I'll go. So I went and I had a busy schedule. I just didn't have the time to go during visiting hours, so I didn't know what it was going to be like. And I went there. She had been raised in Eritrea near, near Ethiopia. And during some of the revolution in wartime during the 60s and the 70s, she fled to Italy. And she, she and her family lived in Italy. And she was a devout Catholic, a very devout Catholic, a very sweet lady. I came in after hours. I wasn't sure I was going to get in, but I was able to get in. And I, I came to her. I wasn't sure how she would receive this stranger coming in after hours, but I told her who I was and who sent me and she welcomed me and received me warmly and we talked at length and I tried to explain to her that there's a difference between the Catholic religion and what the Bible teaches about salvation that the Catholic religion along with many many religions in the world teaches you have to work your way to heaven and earn your way to heaven and try hard and don't do bad and and uh, follow these sets uh, this set of rules and uh, maybe you'll make it and uh, we talked at length about her upbringing and her background, and I was just about to go to Italy that year. And the course of the conversation came to an end, and I thought for sure she was going to say, I'm ready to be saved. And it seemed like it was leading that way. I want to accept Christ. I said, you want to make sure Jesus is your Savior right now? Yes, I'd like to do that. I said, well, you can do that if you'll call upon the Lord. And in your own words, you can pray something like this. And I, I began to lead her in, a, in, in somewhat of a sinner's prayer, if you will, and show her the way of salvation. And I began to, to say, now, if you want to be saved, pray something like this to the Lord. Dear Lord Jesus, she said, dear Lord Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. I know that I'm a sinner. And I don't deserve to, to go to heaven. I deserve to go to hell. I don't deserve to go to heaven. I deserve to go to hell. 
And right now, Jesus, I want you to save me and wash my sin away. Right now, I want you to save me and wash my sin away. I'm trusting only in you, Lord Jesus. She said, I'm trusting only in you, Lord Jesus, and Mary. And I opened my eyes and I stopped. And I looked at her and I said, no, ma'am. I said, you can't trust in Jesus plus Mary. I said, Mary was a good woman, but she was a sinner. She confessed Jesus as her Savior. And only sinners need a Savior. She, she had some hard time understanding, but I explained again and again. And after a few moments, she said, there really is a difference between the two, isn't there? I said, yes. I said, Jesus is God, and he won't share his glory with Mary or you or me or anybody. And I said, he's the only one that can set you free. You see, when you trust in Jesus, it has to be exclusive trust. I'm only trusting in him, not him plus the church or him plus my baptism or him plus my good deeds or him plus anything. I'm putting my faith and trust in him and him alone. And the moment you do choose to put your faith and trust in him, not just that he existed, not just that he was a good teacher, but that he's your only hope for salvation. Lord Jesus, I'm headed to hell. Save me like a person drowning. The moment you do is when you get saved, not before, not until. Now, I want to ask, have you done that? Can you point to a time and say, this is when I got saved? I'm not asking if you got saved from some disease. I'm not asking if you, got, uh, give, if you were given a clean bill of health. I'm not asking that. I'm not asking if you were saved from a car wreck. I'm not asking if you were saved from a house fire. I'm asking, have you accepted the gift of eternal life that Jesus bought and paid for when he died on Calvary and you believe that he died and rose again? Have you put your faith in him? turning from all others and put your faith in Him. If not, tonight you need to be saved because consecration is no good without conversion. And it would be perfectly appropriate, completely fair tonight if you would say, Preacher, I need to be saved to raise your hand. Say, Preacher, I want to be saved right now. We'd stop everything we're doing to help you to Jesus. It's that important. This is not joining a church. It's not joining this church or any church. It's not making a commitment to be a better person, a better husband, a better wife, better son or daughter. It's not that at all. It's coming to Jesus as you are, a lost, hell-bound, hell-deserving sinner, and saying, Jesus, what you did on the cross was enough. It was payment in full. I accept it. Now, if you haven't done that, God brought you to this place to do that. In fact, let's just stop for a moment right now, would you, with heads bowed and eyes closed? This is not the invitation, but with our heads bowed and eyes closed, I want to ask, how many tonight can say, preacher, I know that I've done that. I'm not perfect. I'm still growing. There's still things that I need to learn, but I know that I'm going to heaven when I die because I have at some point accepted this gift of eternal life from Jesus by faith. If you can say, yes, I know that, would you slip your hand up high, preacher? I know that without a doubt. This is not to embarrass anyone. Please don't think of it that way. Thank you. Put your hands down. Is there anyone here that would say, Preacher, I don't know that. I wish that I knew that. I want to know that. But I don't know that. And I'd really like to get that settled. You can get it settled tonight. You can be saved. You can have this sin debt of yours canceled once and for all. And the sin burden laid off your shoulders. If tonight you will receive Jesus Christ as your Savior. If you say, Preacher, I couldn't raise my hand just now. But I truly, truly in my heart would like to know that my sins are forgiven. And that my home is heaven. Would you... Please pray, pray for me. If that's you, would you just slip up your hand? Is there anybody in the building like that? I'm not trying to embarrass anyone. Please don't think that. I just want to pray for you, all right? Is there anyone else that would say, Preacher, I really don't know that I'm going to heaven, but I really would like to know that I'm going to heaven. Would you please pray for me? Is there anyone else along with this one? Just slip up your hand and put it right back down. Heads are bowed. Eyes are closed. No one's looking but Pastor and I. All right? Now, now no one's looking. 
If you just raised your hand and said, preacher, would you pray for me? Did you mean that? Did you mean that? All right. Now, in, if you like right now, you can be saved. Miss Sarah, could you just slip to the back right now? Miss Sarah is just slipping right there and she'll be right there. And you just slip off to the side. She'll take you off to the side room and share with you. If you'd like to be saved, just go with her right now and she'll help you to Jesus. It's right now. You can be saved. That's good. Praise the Lord. Is there anybody else that would say, preacher, right now? I really would like to know. I, I've struggled with this. I've wondered about this. I'm unsure, but I really and truly would like to know that my sins are forgiven and that my home is heaven when I die. You don't know that, but you'd like to know that. Is there anyone else along with this one? Just slip up your hand. Say, preacher, please pray for me. I really want to get it settled. I don't want to continue on in, in this uncertainty of, such, uh, of a matter of such great importance. Anyone else? Just slip up your hand and, and put it right back down. All right, now let's pray right now. Let's bow our hearts before the Lord and let's pray. Father, in Jesus' name, we pray for this one that has decided to just get it settled. Thank you that anytime, anywhere, any place, we, we can come to you and know that you'll receive us. Thank you for this one that's burdened about their soul, uncertain about their eternal destiny. Help them right now to understand the gospel, accept this gift of eternal life, and be saved. Lord, we'll thank you and praise you. Lord, I pray you give understanding and clarity. And Lord, help them to simply believe on Jesus Christ. And we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, would you look this way? Now, this matter of consecration is so vital as the next step after salvation. It is so vital. It's the idea of dedication, full commitment, and all-in mentality. And I think it's lacking in our Christian circles. It's lacking in our Bible-believing churches. It's lacking in our families, in our homes. And sadly, it's even lacking in our marriages. But it's such a vital component of the Christian life. Now, let's look at what consecration looked like in Numbers chapter 6 concerning the one who came under the Nazarite vow. Let's look at it. Number six, the Bible says in verse number uh, one or, or verse two that it was a time to separate themselves unto the Lord. That means they're separating from normal pleasures, normal routine, normal appearance, normal diet, normal activity unto the Lord. In verse number three, it says he shall separate himself from wine and strong drink. Now, let me just pause and say in the Bible, wine was determined, whether it was good or bad, was determined by the context, by the context. And you can even ask people who are, who are Jews today that wine, uh, is it good or bad in the Bible? And they will tell you it's determined by the context. Good meaning it would be non-alcoholic. Bad meaning it would be alcohol. For instance, in Daniel chapter 5, you have Belshazzar's feast, and it's, a, it's basically a drunken orgy. They take temple vessels from the temple that they've stolen and they use them, fill them with strong drink and they get drunk and they blaspheme God and they praise false gods. That would be alcoholic. Uh, you have, uh, you have uh, the context of, uh, of Noah getting drunk and, and in other words, he's inebriated. That would be alcoholic. Uh, you have Jesus turning the water to wine. That would be non-alcoholic. You say, preacher, how can you determine that? Because of the context. Jesus is the author of the Bible. He would never condemn something in one place and then condone it by his actions in another. And it would be foolish to know. Now, Abraham Lincoln said alcohol has many defenders, but no defense. And that's a fact. And I'll tell you this. I wouldn't give you two cents for a Christian's Christianity that goes around defending alcohol. 
And I wouldn't, I wouldn't trust a preacher as far as I could spit that, that goes around defending alcohol. For shame on his sorry carcass. And for shame on him for going around defending alcohol. And if you've got it in your refrigerator, you ought to go home this evening and pour it where it belongs, straight into the toilet. I was preaching in Michigan a while back, and I didn't even preach on alcohol. This is the amazing power of the Word of God and the Spirit of God. And I was preaching on Monday night, and, uh, and God just moved. I mean, it was the time where you could just feel the Lord right at your side helping you. And, and uh, Friday night, this lady came up to me in the foyer, and she said, I've got to talk to you. And I said, yes, ma'am. She said, she said, boy, the other night when you were preaching, God got all over my heart and convicted me about something I've been involved in. I said, well, uh, uh, okay, I don't even know if I wanted to know what it was. And she said, it was, it was just, I, I couldn't even get away from it. And I went home and did something about it. I thought, oh, no, what in the world has she been involved in? What home, what'd she go home and do? She said, I went home and I poured all my peach snops right down the drain. She said, I loved my peach snops and my dark chocolate. Now, ladies, I'm not preaching against your dark chocolate tonight. God bless all your chocolate, whatever it is you love, dark and all in the middle. God bless it all. But she said, I drink peach snops and I'd, I'd eat dark chocolate just for a snack. And I'm racking my brain. I thought, what message did I preach against peach snobs? I don't even know what that stuff is. What was what, what that Monday? What did I preach on Monday? What did I preach, to, what did I preach tonight? I don't even know what I preached. What was what, she talking about? I said, was that the message I preached on Monday? She said, yeah. I didn't say anything about alcohol, but the Holy Spirit did. And she got it right. She told her husband she poured all her peach schnapps down the drain. He said, you did what? You see, that's what happens when God's Holy Spirit convicts it. You see, she took a step of consecration. And in this case, a Nazarite, watch closely, was to not only avoid strong drink, which is always forbidden. Can I say something? Just par pardon me while I pause and preach. Strong drink in the Bible wasn't even close to the weakest alcohol we have today because uh, distillation had not been invented. But strong drink was always condemned. Always settled, settled argument. Settled argument. But now a Nazarite, watch, was not only to keep himself or keep herself from strong drink, which was always forbidden, but he was to keep himself, keep herself from grape juice. From grapes. From raisins. From anything that came of the vine. Did you know that? He was not to drink any or eat any, uh, any, any kind of meal that was ground up from the kernel or the husk. Nothing. You say, why? Well, that was a part of the Nazarite vow. Now, let me pause and explain something. Jesus was not a Nazarite. So, Preacher, I thought he was. No, Jesus was a Nazarene which meant he was from the town of Nazareth. Confused? Watch. Jesus was not a Nazarite. So Jesus wasn't under any Nazarite vow. He was from the town of Nazareth, which made him a Nazarene. All right, now watch. He was to keep himself from wine, strong drink, any liquor of grapes, any moist grapes or dried. Verse number, uh, uh, verse number five. There was no razor to come upon his head. Now there's different opinions about this. Some say it just meant he wasn't shaved. But it does say that they were to let the locks of his hair grow. So if he were three months under a Nazarite vow, he wouldn't go to the barber. If he was six months under the Nazarite vow, he wouldn't go to the barber. If he was 12 months or three years, he wouldn't go to the barber. 
That, that's what the Bible's teaching here. Now watch. It affected his diet, this consecration. It affected his appearance. We'll note it very severely in just a moment. Then he was never to come at any dead thing. Okay? No dead thing. No dead carcass. Uh, he wasn't to come at any dead body even if it was a family member. He wasn't to touch it. He wasn't to defile himself. And there are specific instructions in this passage as to what were to happen if he came near or at a dead body. And the scripture tells us that the Nazarite was fully consecrated to the Lord. Now, in the Bible, there are three lifetime Nazarites. I want to draw application quickly from these three. Are you ready? The first was Samson. His story is found in Judges 13 through 16. The second is Samuel of the books that bear his name. Samuel was a lifetime Nazarite. The third was John the Baptist. John the Baptist story is found in Luke chapter 1 and Mark, Matthew chapter number 3. Uh, John the Baptist was the forerunner of the Lord Jesus Christ. Arguably all three were Old Testament men. John the Baptist was in that middle time between the Testaments and at least in the early stages of the New Testament, but he was the forerunner of Jesus Christ. Now, these were three lifetime Nazarites who their entire life were never to drink grape juice, eat grapes, obviously not drink uh, strong drink because that was always forbidden. They were never to come at a dead body. They were never to shave their head. They were to let the locks of their hair grow. Lifetime Nazarites. <clears throat> In the Bible, if you looked at a man who had long hair, it was either a sign of rebellion like Absalom or they were a Nazarite like Samuel or Samson or John the Baptist. Now let's consider this. First go to Judges chapter 13, would you? Judges chapter 13, I want us to draw some simple application about this matter of the blessing of consecration. The blessing of consecration. The Bible says in Judges chapter 13 and verse 2, there was a certain man of Zorah of the family of the Danites whose name was Manoah and his wife was barren and bare not. And the angel of the Lord appeared unto the woman and said unto her, Behold, now thou art barren and bearest not, but thou shalt conceive and bear a son. Now therefore beware, I pray thee, and drink not wine nor strong drink and eat not anything, any unclean thing. For lo, thou shalt conceive and bear a son, and no razor shall come on his head. For the child shall be a Nazarite unto God from the womb, and he shall begin to deliver Israel out of the hand of the Philistines. Now let's consider for just a moment. Samson's mama, Samuel's mother, Hannah, and John the Baptist's mother, Elizabeth, all were barren. All of them. And the blessing of consecration was in and through their testimony, their family line, in that it brought fruitfulness out of barrenness. The blessing of consecration is that it makes fruitfulness out of barrenness. God is the one that brings fruit. God is the one that blesses with life. And in every one of these homes, God brought fruitfulness out of barrenness. That's the blessing of consecration. Because consecration always brings more fruit. Now listen carefully. As I travel the country, I have traveled for 22 years in different places around this country, this great country, and many places around the world. Some churches I've seen are just dying on the vine. Really, 
I preached in Luthersburg, Pennsylvania when I first started out. And honestly, it'd be surprising to me if that church is still there. Uh, as soon as the amen was given, the final amen, boom, that place was vacated fast. People couldn't get out of there fast enough. I'm not sure why they came. They surely didn't come to stay. They were coming to get out. There was not a friendliness. There was not a warmth. There was not a welcome. That place was deader than a doornail. And some churches I'm in are like that. Some churches have been through World War III. Maybe it's internal fighting. Maybe it's an attack from the devil. Maybe it's an attack from the preacher, attack from the people against the preacher. It's just World War III, and you come and you look around, and you say, oh, man, this looks like a, a major bomb has gone off in here. You look at people, and they don't even have any desire to come, and it's just major trouble. Some churches I'm in are flourishing. All right, what's the difference? It would do well for every church in a country, every church in America to say, what's the difference between a dying church and a thriving church? And whatever is causing the dying, I want to reject. And whatever is causing the thriving, I want to embrace. I'm talking about biblical churches. I'm not talking about compromising churches. And I'm not even talking necessarily about the biggest churches. That's not my focus. I'm talking about churches that are ordering their lives by the Bible. All right, what's the difference? One is that they are completely consecrated to the Lord. Consecration in that church culture is a good thing, not a bad thing. I'm talking about holiness unto the Lord. I'm talking about separating themselves from the world unto Christ. I'm talking about daily Bible reading. I'm talking about prayer being a regular part of the individuals in that church. I'm talking about there being a collective desire and an individual desire by the people of the church, not just to show up when food is offered, but to show up whenever there is, there is work to be done. And they're there to hear the word of God. They're not just letting the preacher do all the work. They're saying, preacher, we're all in and we're going to help you bear the load of this thing. It's not just the preacher in these churches that has a vision for the town or the county or the state. It's the people that have embraced the vision. And do you know what that is? Consecration. Not carnality, not casual Christianity, not lazy spiritual uh, decisions, but consecration, commitment. I want to ask, what wins, what wins football games? Commitment. What, wins, what brings a team to a, a baseball championship or, or the, the playoffs or the World Series? Commitment. I'm all in. The thing wouldn't even work if the player sat back and said, Coach, you do all the work. That's why we pay you the big bucks. It wouldn't work. No, consecration. Now watch. Consecration brings fruitfulness out of barrenness. But let's go back and let's see something. In Judges chapter 13, the woman came in verse number 6. Judges 13 in verse 6. The woman came and told her husband, saying, A man of God came unto me, and his countenance was like the countenance of an angel of God, very terrible. But I asked him not whence he was, neither told he me his name. But he said unto me, Behold, thou shalt conceive and bear a son. Now drink no wine nor strong drink, neither eat any unclean thing for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. Then Manoah, that was Samson's father, entreated the Lord and said, O oh my Lord, let the man of God which thou didst send come again unto us and teach us what we shall do unto the child that shall be born. 
And God hearkened unto the, a voice of Manoah, and the angel of God came again unto the woman as she sat in the field, but Manoah, her husband, was not with her. And the woman made haste and ran and showed her husband and said unto him, Behold, the man hath appeared unto me that came unto me the other day. And Manoah arose and went after his wife and came to the man and said unto him, Art thou the man that spakest unto the woman? He said, I am. And Manoah said, Now, now let thy words come to pass. How, how shall we order the child and how shall we do unto him? Watch now. Manoah, the dad of Samson, was interested in doing this thing right. Are you ready? Watch this. Consecration must be made if it will be, if it will be felt. It must be made if it will be felt. And what I'm drawing from just Samson's life and his parents, I can draw from Hannah's life. Do you remember Hannah? She couldn't bear any child. She had a, a home situation that was less than desirable. She and, and, and her uh, she and Penina shared the same husband. <laughs> no, it wasn't Mormon. It's long before that. It, but it wasn't godly. But that's the way it was in this home. And she couldn't have children. And Penina, the other wife in the situation, she had all kinds of children. And she kind of rubbed it in Hannah's nose. And Hannah was at, at, at the temple one day or at the tabernacle and she was praying. And she was so vigilant in her prayer and so passionate in her prayer that Eli thought her to be drunk. And she cried out, and she said, Oh God, if you'll give me a son, I'll give him back to you, and no razor shall come upon his head. You know what that is? That's consecration. It must be made if it will be felt. Before she had a son, she said, God, give me a son, I'll give him back to you. And God gave her a son, and God blessed her. Now watch, here you have Zechariah. He is, he is the uh, high priest and Elizabeth, his wife, they're old age and they're, they're serving the Lord. They're, they're walking with God and the angel of the Lord appears to Zechariah and says, you're going to have a son and his name is going to be John, John and he's going to preach and he's going to be the forerunner of the Messiah. And Zechariah, he came out and said, this is going to be his name. It was something that was made in order for it to be felt. Look, we want the blessings of consecration without the commitment of consecration. Look here, if you want God's blessings that come from faithfulness, then you have to be faithful. You have to be there. You have to show up and not just show up, but show up with bells on and your sleeves rolled up and say, God, give us your blessing and your power so that we can give honor and glory to you. And I find a good many Christians today that they want the benefit without the sacrifice. They want the, they, they want the benefit of his name without the sacrifice that accompanies it and the cost that goes with it. And I want to say, if this church is going to go forward for the Lord and God's going to use the people of this church, not only to fill up this building, but to reach into homes and lives and families and transform this area with the gospel, then there's going to have to be some consecration that is made. Now, I want to ask specifically, how is God telling you to make a consecration? What step is he asking for you to make? All right, let's consider. Let's go back to 1 Samuel chapter 1, would you? 1 Samuel chapter 1, would you turn there? This is Hannah. She's crying out before the Lord. We understand now that consecration brings fruitfulness out of barrenness. That's a miracle. We understand that consecration must be made if it will be felt. Watch this. We understand, three, that consecration turns the Ichabod generation to the revival generation. Consecration turns the Ichabod generation to the revival generation. Now listen to me carefully. There are a lot of carnal Christians, whether knowingly or unknowingly, that stand today and they laugh at the consecrated Christians. Ah, they're just a bunch of holy rollers. 
Ah, they're just a bunch of holy Joes. Ah, they're just looking down their noses on everybody else. And, and maybe they are, maybe they're not, but there's a group of Christians that are trying to be consecrated, and they're not trying to be holier than thou, and they're not trying to be better than everybody else. They're just trying to say, all right, what does the Bible say? I want to order my life by that, and if I've done wrong, I want to get it right. I want to confess my sin. I want to make sure I'm right with the Lord and right with others, and, and I need to be faithful in church, and how can I be filled with the Spirit so that I can have eternal reward? And Lord, help me to order my life, and over here the carnal Christians, ah, you bunch of holier than thou's. And they're always laughing at us. Always trying to make fun of those that are trying to live their life to honor God. Look here. Don't you let some carnal Christian who is not doing it tell you how to do it. Ever. Don't let some carnal Christian who doesn't know what it is to have a consecrated marriage and the benefits of that tell you how to have a, a, a marriage. Don't let some carnal Christian who's not, not winning souls tell you how to win souls. Somebody came to D.L. Moody and said, I don't particularly like the way you're winning people to Jesus. He said, well, to be perfectly honest with you, I don't really like it either. He said, sir, how do you win people to Jesus? And the man said, well, I don't. And Deal Moody said, I like my way of doing it better than your way of not doing it. And that's right. You just have to have a mindset. Watch this. In 2 Samuel chapter number 1, 2, and 3, do you know where Hannah gave her son Samuel after he was weaned? Oh, preacher, I know. To a nice, neat little Christian school. Nope. Oh, preacher, I know. To a boarding school with teachers that cared for him and preachers that were giving an example where they had nice chapel services every day. It was a nice, safe space. Nope. Eli was the high priest and he was lazy, he was undisciplined, and he had no control over his home. His sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are you ready? were money-grubbing priests, and they were immoral. They committed adultery with the women of Israel. And they caused Israel to despise the sacrifice so that they went out in a battle against the Philistines, and Hophni and Phinehas took the ark of God out there like it was a good luck charm. That's never the intention of the ark of God. They brought it out there, and it made all the Israelites glad, and they were shouting and hooping and hollering, and the Philistines said, what's all that chaos? They said, they must have the ark of God. We better steal that thing out of there, or we're going to lose this battle. So the Philistines stole the ark of God away from Israel. On the same day, Hophni and Phinehas were killed in battle. On the same day, Eli heard the news and fell backward and broke his neck and died. On the same day, Phinehas' wife bare a son, and she died in childbirth, and in her last breath, she named the son. You know what the name was? Ichabod. Now, I don't want to be offensive. Is there anybody here named Ichabod? I mean, you don't even think like that. I've been there at each one of my children's births, and I've had the privilege to be integrally, integrally, uh, intimately involved in the naming of the child. Never once in all of our names did we come up with the idea of Ichabod. I mean, what's the short of that? Icky. I mean, you know, I mean, it's just not real good. Ichabod. You know what Ichabod means? The glory has departed. And that's why the mama named the son Ichabod because that day Eli died, Hophni and Phinehas died, and the ark of God was stolen by the Philistines. And do you know that God told Samuel, young five, six-year-old Samuel, before the fact to tell Eli all of this would happen. And Samuel would grow up now as a prophet 
and a mighty servant of God so that no prophet was his equal. And he changed the Ichabod generation to the revival generation. You know what did it? Consecration. Are you to watch now? Watch. The blessing of consecration is that it brings fruitfulness out of barrenness. It must be made if it will be felt. It changes the Ichabod generation to the revival generation. Watch me now. It must be kept. You say, preacher, what do you mean? This is not passive. Listen to me carefully. My dad was saved out of a United Methodist church up in northern Minnesota in a town called Pengilly that's about this big around. He was saved when he was 16 years old in 1950. And are you ready? He had been in that church every time the doors were open. My grandpa, his dad, was the treasurer. But none of the family was saved. Do you know why none of the family was saved? Because that United Methodist Church had succumbed to liberalism, which is as vile as a snake's belly. And, and they had never preached the gospel. They didn't even know what the gospel was. It took a Pentecostal preacher to get a burden for Pengilly, Minnesota, set up a tent, start gospel meetings, and my dad went with my grandpa and my uncle and my grandma, and that was the first time they'd ever heard the gospel, that Jesus died, was buried, and rose again. My uncle later would get saved. My dad would later get saved. My grandpa would get saved. Then my grandma would get saved. Look here. My dad would leave the United Methodist Church, which, by the way, is what you ought to do if you've been saved and you're still going to a liberal church that doesn't even know the gospel. Get out of that thing. It's a mess. It's a cage of filthy birds. Listen, my dad went to the Methodist bishop and he said that he'd been born again. You know what that Methodist bishop in Nashwalk said? Well, just because you've had this experience, does that mean everybody has to? Yes, it does. Because Jesus said you must be born again. So my dad got saved out of liberalism, and he didn't get saved because of liberalism. He got saved in spite of it because somebody preached the gospel. You know, as a 45-year-old man growing up, I never knew what it was to have an unsaved grandma and grandpa on my dad's side or my, or my mom's side. I thank God for that. My, gra my grandpa on my... My grandpa on my mom's side, he farmed up in North Dakota, and he would never farm barley. He would never raise barley because he knew it would be made into hops or beer, and he didn't want any part of all that. My grandpa, my great-grandpa was saved. He went out into the field one day. Revival was sweeping across North Dakota and the North Dakota prairie, and he came out a different man, came back a different man because he trusted Christ. So this is my heritage. Watch this. Look what I'm about to say. I have two brothers and two sisters. One of my sisters is in heaven. And you hear me with what I'm about to say. At any time, any one of us Smiths could drop the ball, give up, get bitter, get sideways with God or man, drop out of church, and our children would lose out. On hearing the gospel, they would follow our dreadful example likely. The gospel would cease 
to be passed on from one generation to the next in the Smith family. And you could know the Smith family that once preached the gospel to be nothing but a bunch of drunks and sorry losers who dropped out on God. If we fail to keep consecrated to the Lord. Now listen carefully. I know this man. And I know he's not keeping up late at night and having his phone by his bed so he can wait on every one of his members beck and call. And I know he's not putting blood, sweat, and tears in this place. And I know neither are some of you so that next generation, the whole thing can go to hell in a handbasket because one generation decided they just were going to give up on God. You say, preacher, how is it kept? It's kept by prayer. It's kept by forgiveness. It's kept by holiness. It's kept by righteousness. It's kept by when we're wronged, we, when we're wronged, we forgive. When we've done wrong, we get right. It's kept by continuing to go back to the word of God. It's kept by saying onward, forward, marching unto Zion. It's kept by saying no turning back. I have decided to follow Jesus. That's how it's kept. Now, ladies and gentlemen, what are the stakes if we don't keep it? Our grandchildren may not know the gospel. That's important to me. Watch, do you know in Samson's life, it wasn't kept. You know what he did? He started to play footsie with the devil and go down and walk through the vineyards of Timnath. I'm not taking any grapes. I'm not having any of these California sun-dried raisins. Don't be such a legalist and point your finger at me. I just want to smell what I can't have. He killed a lion, and he came at a dead body when it was filled with bees and honey. He played around with fire, the fire of immorality. And do you know what it cost Samson? His eyes. His strength. The power of God. You said, preacher, didn't he kill more in his death than in his life? Yes, praise God for grace. But you know what I always ask when I think of Samson? What might have been? He was a judge for 25 years. I wonder if he might have been a judge for 40 years. He was used of God to an extent, and he made it in the hall of faith. I wonder what he could have accomplished if he had made himself and kept himself consecrated to the Lord. Now listen, we're going to draw one last conclusion. Are you ready? The blessing of consecration is that it brings fruitfulness out of barrenness. It must be made if it will be felt. It turns the Ichabod generation to the revival generation. It must be kept. But when you study the life of John the Baptist, you know what John the Baptist spent his entire life doing? Pointing to Jesus. This was his ministry. There's someone coming after me who's mightier than I, whose shoes I'm not even worthy to touch. He's coming. He's coming. He's coming. And then when Jesus came, he said, behold, the Lamb of God, he's here, he's here, he's here. And all the people that thronged to hear John the Baptist left him and went to follow Jesus. And his disciples came and said, they're all following Jesus. And John the Baptist said, that's the whole point. He said, I'm not the bridegroom, I'm just his friend. I'm not, the, I'm not the main man. I'm just the porter who opens the door. Hey, you want to see him? 
He's the one. He must increase and I must decrease. And watch now. Watch now. Now John the Baptist is in prison and he's even questioning. Jesus, are you the one? And Jesus sent back a message saying, the blind receive the sight, the lame walk, the dead are raised, the deaf hear. You know what Jesus was saying? He was saying, look at the Bible and compare the Bible with what my life is and what my ministry is and you'll find the answer. And you know what John the Baptist did at the end of his life? He lost his head. Consecration cost him everything. But while John the Baptist fades into the shadows, do you know what he did? He pointed to Jesus. The blessing of consecration is that it's the best way to exalt Jesus. I'm not holding my breath waiting for carnal Christianity to exalt Jesus and the bebopping and jamming for Jesus crowd to exalt Jesus. But I'm looking for the people that will give their life and everything. This month, in fact, next week, a year, October 30th, a man named Chuck Charles went from Indiana and he, he went with his family to a little place in West Africa called Cameroon. I met him on Labor Day. I met him. And when I met him, he was so excited to go. He was only there two weeks and revolution was breaking out. He and a fellow missionary and his wife, Stephanie Wesco, they were driving down the road and gunfire came, erupted, fired in the car. His body was riddled with holes. And he died. He said, preacher, he died? Yeah. Children were made fatherless. A young lady, a young mother, a young wife was made a widow. She held his body and screamed in terror and horror, just trying to hold life back in. They got his body to the hospital, and the doctors tried everything. And when the doctor got done, they pulled the sheet over his head. He came to his wife, Stephanie, and he bowed. He said, thank you for coming to our country and giving your life. You said, preacher, isn't that a tragedy? No. That's consecration. And that's the kind of consecration that gives everything and dies to self so that people can see Jesus yeah. Christ. Watch me now. <clears throat> consecration is going to cause you to show up. It's going to cause you to roll up your sleeves. It's going to cause you to give up your rights. It's going to cause you to say, he must increase, but I must decrease. And I think it's interesting. Three lifetime Nazarites and two of the three were given in the period of the judges. A time of great wickedness demanded a time of great consecration. And folks, listen to me. We are at a time of unprecedented wickedness in our country. 
You know what's going to turn it back from the brink? You know what's going to cause great revival? Consecration. Father, forgive me for any times in my life when I've not been consecrated to you. When I've chosen self above consecration. Lord, I'm not sure I fully understand the depths and the heights of what this means. But Lord, whatever it is, I want it. I want it for my children. I want it for my family. Lord Jesus, I pray that you'd raise up some Samuels tonight and some Samsons and some John the Baptists who in the period of silence and judgment Great consecration brings great deliverance. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. I'm asking tonight, how many of you would say, Preacher, I'm saved. But there's an area specific that God is dealing with me about to consecrate to the Lord. Maybe it's your children. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's a talent. Maybe it's something that in and of itself is not harmless. It is not sinful. But God's just saying, I want you to lay it on the altar. You said, preacher, in some way, large or small, God is speaking to me about consecrating myself to him. Would you pray that I would? Yes. If that's you, would you slip up your hand right now? Slip it up high. Good. Good. Praise the Lord. Who else? Don't be ashamed. Don't be afraid. Good. Oh, amen. Praise God. Good. Who else? The preacher, God's speaking to me. Something large or small, he wants me to give to, to him. It wasn't a sin to drink grape juice. It wasn't a sin to eat raisins. But it was for the Nazarite. And they had to give it up. Willingly. Gladly. Is anything so important that we can't give it up for Jesus? What is it that God's speaking to you about? Is there anyone else, a preacher? God's speaking to me about giving something to him and consecrating it to him. Would you pray that I would tonight? Anyone else along with these good? In a moment, we're going to stand. I want to ask each of you that raised your hand, not just to remain in your seat, but to take those steps of consecration, to bow before the Lord, to name those specific things that God is dealing with me. Can I be transparent with you today? We went to a preacher's meeting and the first message which wasn't even planned for that preacher to preach, hit me right between the eyes. And I made five specific decisions that are life changers. God asked me to consecrate something to him. It's going to cost, but I'm going to do it with God's help. Let's stand with our heads bowed and our eyes closed.